And we also see that operating in places like the Caribbean, where they have multiple gradations and hundreds of ways to yeah, say that you course. are between black and white. I mean, the upshot is actually you just don't want to be black. Anything. Yeah. Yep. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And when y'all hear this, I will be in the thick of exams, so be sure to send me some positive energy and gifts. I like (laughs) gifts. That was gifts with a T, not a meme. Please. don't No memes. She will be offline (laughs) taking her exams. So, hey, everyone. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And yes, make sure that you send the positive vibes, the love, and all the clarity her Mm -hmm. way. And if you do happen to be a hater listening, first of all, why are you wasting your time? (laughs) Second of all, we are going to be sure to send that energy back to you with all of the love and light. Uh, We are so excited to bring to you all our long-awaited episode on Afro-pessimism. (laughs) Long-awaited. Begging, begging for this. Um, And so now Alyssa and I are not experts by any means. So we will be bringing on the brilliant Chloe Foe to help us talk this out. We'll also be getting into the Meghan Markle debacle, gendered state violence, and some of the things y'all do so y'all don't have to redress Black women's suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this episode. But before we get started, we wanted to say a big thank you to all of our supporters. Thank you to Lachelle, Mayada, Tina, and Sophie for your generous donations. We value all kinds of support, so donate, send us an email, follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters, and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And of course, you can buy some ZD swag at our website, zorasdaughters.com backslash shop. Right. And you might have missed it, but the podcast and yours truly were featured on Savage Xfinity's Instagram page. Hey. And we like to think that Rihanna knows our names and that she actually listens, which if you do, hey, girl, um, (laughs) I don't really do celebrity culture, but she's among the few who I fangirl over. And I'm pretty sure that I bought enough Fenty to at least cover a couple of light bills at the factory. So this feels like... (laughs) recognition deserved honestly a couple don't you have like super (laughs) vip status at sephora (laughs) yep yep my my partner's always talking about how i have rouge status at sephora i the only reason why i wear makeup is because of miss rihanna robin fenty so you know Okay. You're, you're obsessed. You. Yeah. I'm obsessed. I mean, it is. That's, that's okay. Um, you <laughs> definitely you definitely put me on to Savage by Fenty. And, you know, here we are. Here we are. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually just thrilled that they see value in your dissertation research and your advocacy um, work and, like, enough that they wanted to share it with literally the world. They have a global platform, a global stage. And they, you know, put you on it. Like, that is dope. And, of course, when when you told me and you were like, 
Riri, I'm like, Riri might know your name. <laughs> she might know your name. Yo, the idea that Rihanna, <laughs> Rihanna might be somewhere mispronouncing my name is actually bringing me such joy. <laughs> um, such joy, honestly. <laughs> I, I, would you let her call you Berenda Nay? Look, as long as she is calling me, yo, she can call me whatever she wants. Um, friend, supporter, you know, I, I just, all of it, I, I really love her. And her philanthropy work, like, she puts her money where her mouth is. So I love that. All right. Well, we are going to throw back to a game we haven't played since the first semester of the podcast. So here we are. We're going to go in with a little defund, reform, abolish, you know, just to wet your palate <laughs> for the rest of the episode. And I think you've come up with a bit of a doozy for me and our listeners. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a doozy. I'm going to say that. Um, so, Alyssa, defund, reform, or abolish. Light skin privilege, mm-hmm. white passing, mm-hmm. and the one drop rule. All right. All right. I think this is great, actually, because <laughs> you, you've literally put it in the order that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it back to you in. So, <laughs> And y'all keep in mind that the premise of this is that they all should be abolished. So my responses are just like circumscribed <laughs> within this mm-hmm. game. Um, so I'm going to defund light skin privilege. Like, just, just let it starve. Let it starve financially because Black and non-Black people have been trading and profiting off of it for years. Whoop. People need to stop profiting off of it. It's been to the detriment of dark-skinned Black folks. So Period. We can defund that. I'm going to reform white passing. Not because it needs to stay. Mm-hmm. Although, admittedly, it was, you know... A way in which people stayed safe in you know in previous years although even that was tenuous like the safety that yeah. you had as a white passing person uh, you made sure you didn't have no kids to tell on you <laughs> so <laughs> uh, save that for later <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i'm not saying that it should stick around but what i think needs to be done is that there needs to be a clarification and it's that there is a difference between white passing and white presenting. And I think mm-hmm. people have called Meghan Markle and Rashida Jones and Nicole Richie, they've called them white passing. And it's interesting that they're all women. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about, I'm like, who are some of the, the men that people call white passing? The only one I could think of was Wentworth Miller. I don't even know. He's the guy from Prison Break. The Human Stain. I'm to look that up. He was in The I'm Human Stain. I'm to look that up. I'm going to have to look that up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I'm exposing myself right now. Oh, man. (laughs) So these folks, they are white presenting. All right. So white passing implies that you're actively living your life as a white person. So you're hiding that you have black ancestry. As Brendan said earlier, you're not having kids because you don't want them to tell on you. That's white passing. It's an active choice. White presenting means that you could pass for white if you chose to. But really, it's that, it's that white people and some black people will not immediately perceive you as black. Mm, okay. And so then finally, I will abolish the one drop rule because it has been allowing us to center non-black people and black people who do not experience anti-blackness 
at the same levels as others. And I think we've been centering them, you know, centering these people that have black ancestry in our fight for freedom. And we don't need to be doing that anymore. Ooh. So that is the Mary Ooh. had a little lamb on that. Ooh, and still I oop, yo. <laughs> Ooh. Well, um, yeah. I mean, do you have, would you do anything differently? What do you think? I, let's see. I think I agree with you. I think I did lay it out in a way that, you know, kind of fits with all of these things. And absolutely, um, and think about something that we watched last night, a video that we watched last night about how we, who we choose to center in our fight for freedom is what matters most, right? So want to hammer down that this is not just about who you choose to date, who you choose to interact with, who you choose to befriend, right? This is about the politics of it all and how we achieve freedom. And lighter skinned people don't have the same stakes that darker skinned people do in the game. Don't have the same kind of skin in the game, even if we are all black. So... (laughs) I see what you did Y'all there. can see what I'm doing, but I'm like, do, do, do. <laughs> we don't have the same skin in the game. I we see don't. what you did there. That might be the episode <laughs> title. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, it was Not off the dome. It. <laughs> Not bad at it. All right. So let's get into our word for the day. Brendan, what is our word? The word for today is Afro-pessimism. Some of y'all love it. Some of y'all hate it. Some of y'all love to hate it. Uh, and some of y'all might be like, what the hell is that? But don't worry, we got you. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much why we're here. But wait, <laughs> hang on. Who? So who hates it? Who's hating? <laughs> Ooh, child. Okay, where do I begin? So there's one set of people who are usually Black who are invested in the idea of racial reconciliation and progress. So they hate Afro-pessimism because of the way that it it is very much attentive to slavery. Um, So these people believe that the Black can exist outside of the category of the slave. And they point to the social markers of success, quote unquote, to demonstrate that. So one example is representation of Black people in authority and the belief that that is liberation in and of itself. Mm Um, there's another group of people who are hesitant to identify as Afro-pessimists because it implies that you don't have hope for the future. So that they really fixate on like the pessimist part right. and they're like, but, but what about hope, you know, and, and change? And um, as one of our listeners and our, our friend mentioned, you know, Obama is the great white hope, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what about hope? Um, and my response to that is always, I don't have hope for a future that willfully denies the past, right? And especially when our present is a reproduction of the plantation, right? And so that for right. me, it requires some type of blinders like about where we are in the world. And finally, well, not finally, but there are also some feminists who are hesitant because many Afro-pessimist theorists are Black cisgendered Men who actually don't attend to the gendered experiences of Black life, particularly those of Black women. Um, and then Afro-pessimist theory employed by some can be transphobic because they actually exclude trans people from their imaginations of Black non-being. Mm. Okay. So there sounds like there's some, you know, some well, some well thought mm-hmm. out, well-deserved critiques and others who aren't reading it as closely as they possibly could, but 
we will try to give you all an overview now. You're right. And this is, again, introductory because, as we'll talk about a little bit later, this is really, Afro-pessimism is based on a very long trajectory and genealogy mm-hmm. of thinking. So, yes, I think to start off, we could say that Afro-pessimism was conceived at UC Berkeley by Jared Sexton and Frank B. Wilderson, who are now both professors at UC Irvine, David Marriott, who is now a professor at Penn State, and Saidia Hartman, who was actually Wilderson's advisor at Berkeley and is now a MacArthur Fellow and professor at Columbia. And so, (laughs) 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 And so others I think you'll hear called into Afro-pessimist critique are Christina Sharp, Claudia Rankine, Fred Moten, Joy James, Patrice Douglas, Denise Ferreira da Silva, and, you know, so many more. Um, but those are kind of the the big, big names. names. <laughs> yes. So one thing we want to say, right, is like, don't discount those relationships you're building in grad school. You know, you might meet someone who you actually can build an entire framework with. Um, Revolutionize you know? Black studies. <laughs> right? Black studies has not been the same since scenes of subjection hit, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to the 2018 Oxford Bibliographies entry written by Patrice Douglas, Salemowit Terefe, and Frank Wilderson, Afro-pessimism is a lens of interpretation that accounts for civil society's dependence on anti-Black violence, a regime of violence that positions Black people as internal enemies of civil society. So what does that mean? Afro-pessimists assert that human life, that is society as we know it, is fundamentally built upon the exclusion, enslavement, and death of Black people. Right. So in a few interviews, Wilderson talks about how throughout his life experiences, he was developing an analysis of how the world operates. Mm. And I think that, you know, we could all say that we're doing something of the sort. That is what we do when we walk through the world, we theorize it. And that's why we use anthropology as well, because you're, you're really allowed to like say that people are theorizing the world, the world in which they live. So he and the others, they're all studying together, they're thinking together, they're reading these you know, canonical theories like Marxism and post-colonialism, psychoanalytic feminisms, and all of these kinds of things. And they're like, all right, these concepts, they, they hold these di- di- dichotomies that can't actually hold blackness. Mm-hmm. These theories are not useful containers for the experiences of black people in the United States. So in order to understand black suffering and anti-black violence, they build on ideas put forth by scholars like Orlando Patterson, who wrote about social death, that's the condition of people not fully accepted as human, Hortense Spillers and the idea of the persistence of the conditions in the hold of the slave ship, Sylvia Winter and her letter, No Humans Involved, and her notion of the genre of man, Franz Fanon's psychoanalysis of the black, and Lewis Gordon's claim that we live in an anti-black world. So one thing while I was doing my research, I found out that Orlando Patterson doesn't think that African-Americans currently are in a state of social death, and he actually finds his influence on Afro-pessimism, quote-unquote, ironic. <laughs> I mean, he is he is a sociologist, so, and that's all I'm going to say on that. Um. <laughs> but what I think is important to note here, though, is that the theoretical scaffolding on which Afro-pessimism is built is dense and elaborate, 
And that's actually one of the critiques is that it makes it pretty inaccessible Mm -hmm. to most people. And so this was actually the first time I think we thought, all right, I think we can actually talk about this. We can try to approach Afro-pessimism in the podcast because we've already talked about necropolitics. We've already talked about Hortense Spillers and Christina Sharp and Sylvia Winter. And so we were like, okay, now we can, you know, now we kind of have built our own scaffolding or our listeners have had, you know, some introduction to each piece of it. So that way we can finally talk about it. But nevertheless, you know, Frank B. Wilderson was saying that he does get invited to do workshops on Afro-pessimism, you know, with activists across the globe. So people are finding use in it. And I think we'll talk about Hmm. that a little bit more (laughs) later. You know, Black radical theory and what it's done Mm -hmm. for radical movements around the world is definitely something that we might even have to do like a separate little special something on (laughs) one of these days. But we've also discussed before that academia and especially theory is a conversation and that they all operate within a genealogy. So one thing that we want you all to keep in mind is that most of these scholars have cautioned against turning Afro-pessimism, TM, um, as Savannah (laughs) Shangay would say, into a doctrine or philosophy. And really, this is an ongoing conversation between intellectuals who are interested in an interrelated set of questions. So all of the people that Alyssa laid out for us earlier are in a conversation with each other. Sometimes, um, I would say sometimes in they're pushing these ideas further in order to understand how it was possible to enslave, lynch, imprison, and kill Black people, a genealogy in and of itself, and people who are also racialized as Black. And they understand anti-Blackness as fundamental to U.S. society. And that could be expanded to say the structure of the modern world because it wouldn't exist today were it not for the process of racializing Africans and then enslaving them. And if you want to understand more about racialization, you can check out our episode 11, which is like the episode where it was the word. We're citing ourselves here. It's beautiful. (laughs) You love to see it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... Afro-pessimists are, quote, theorists of Black positionality who share Fennel's insistence that though Blacks are indeed sentient beings, the structure of the entire world's semantic field, regardless of culture or national discrepancies, is sutured by anti-Black solidarity, end quote. Mm. So that's from Wilderson's book, Red, White, and Black. And what he's saying here is Afro-pessimists theorize the way the world understands that Black people are sentient, so people know that Black people feel and perceive. However, the structure of the world is held together by a tacit agreement around perpetuating anti-Blackness. So Mm -hmm. a large part of white supremacist culture is actually keeping other white people in line, right? It's about making it uncomfortable to talk about race or, you know, to talk about other things that belong to white supremacist culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, the common refrain you'll often hear is like when, whenever you want to talk about difference, it's, oh, I never thought about it. You're not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> like You're that's not the supposed literal, to. <laughs> right. The literal point. <laughs> and it's uncomfortable to. Because you share, if it's uncomfortable for you, it's because you share a common interest with the other people who are also uncomfortable talking about it. And that interest is maintaining power. Absolutely. Um, And even you may want to maintain power without even consciously knowing it, right? So 
<sighs> but we put the question on Instagram and on Twitter and I'm curious to know, Alyssa, like what were some of the questions that we got about Afro-pessimism? Yes. Yeah, so one of the questions we got um, was whether Afro-pessimism was the opposite of Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are actually quite a few Afroisms going around these days. And so this use of Afro-pessimism is different from the use of Afro-pessimism by journalists in the 80s. And so they were basically talking about sub-Saharan Africa Mm. Um, as beyond the point of political and economic redemption. They're basically like, Africa, these are the reasons that Africa cannot govern themselves. It's the typical Mm. story that you'll hear and see. I mean, it's, you know, it's a continent of war, poverty, despair, Mm. hunger, hopelessness, you know, all of these kinds of things, which you can, which you can see like the, the beginnings of, and the encapsulation of in this, in this book, The Heart of Darkness. And so Afro-optimism is a response to that. Afro-optimism, it emphasizes the modernity of Africa. It's all positivity and celebrating Africanness and economic growth and political reform and, you know, all of these vibrant cultures within Africa. Okay. So that's Afro-optimism. And so these are kind of just like popular and media representations when people talk about like the 80s use of Afro-pessimism and Afro-optimism. So they're kind Mm -hmm. of like in a binary together as a response to each other. Now, Afrofuturism, which is what our listener asked about, um, is more of an aesthetic and it's a cultural aesthetic. So that means it's a particular style or philosophy that you'll see in films, literature, visual art, and things like that. So that has its origins in African-American science fiction, mm-hmm. and it explores the intersection of the African diaspora with technology. So you can think of like Octavia Butler's books, Sun Ra's music, the Black Panther, you know, all of these would be examples of Afrofuturism. Yeah, and it's really interesting to think about the ways that um, Western ways of thinking penetrate us and we like things are thought of as binaries when they actually don't necessarily need to be right. So Afro pessimism does not need to be in contention with thinking about black futures. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring us back to right thinking what, what good does it do for us to, to think about a future that's not grounded in the realities of the past and of the present. Right. Right. What, what, how will we ever achieve a future that we can't, actually grapple with what's happening now, which Joy James talks about when she talks about the captive maternal um, in one of her articles. And so I want us to keep that in mind as well as two other things, right? So first, Afro-pessimism isn't about a performance of race or a performance of Blackness. So it's not about this interpolated identity. And if you want to know more about what we mean by that, check out episode 11. Honestly, just keep it running while you sleep, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Afro-pessimism theorizes structures and the way that they are upheld by anti-Black violence. And secondly, I think it's important for us to note that in this framework, blackness is coterminous with slaveness. So the state of slavery is structural and ongoing, and it's actually permanent, right, if these structures continue to exist as they do today. So every black person is always a slave, always stripped of personhood, and thus available to be killed without penalty, which I think really brings us nicely to what we're reading today. Yeah, so what we're reading today is Black Feminist Theory for the Dead and Dying by Patrice D. Douglas. 
So for those of you who don't know who Patrice D. Douglas is, put some respect on her name. Patrice D. Douglas is an assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and feminist studies at Duke University. She holds a PhD and Master's of Arts in Cultural and Theory from the University of California, Irvine, a Master's in Ethnic Studies from the University of California, Riverside, and a Bachelor's in Feminist Studies and Legal Studies from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her first book project, tentatively titled Engendering Blackness, The Political Ontology of Sexual Violence, deconstructs antebellum case law to examine the history of sexual violence under slavery. This project interrogates how the adjudication of sexual violence as a possible injury against the enslaved is absent in the legal record. By engaging Black political and feminist theory, engendering Blackness interrogates how the narrative of gender suffering hinges upon an understanding of rights, will, and consent that situates the nexus between Blackness and gender as a belated concern. And today we are reading one of her articles, Black Feminist Theory for the Dead and Dying. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. First thing I'm going to say is that this is one of the tougher texts that we've read mm-hmm. I mean, for this for this podcast. I had to read it twice. <laughs> and that was just for me to be able to come on here and talk about it. I would not teach this yet. <laughs> <laughs> I am not there yet. Um, so I just wanted to say that to everyone because learning and understanding really is a process. And so don't Mm -hmm. think that if you're reading something and you don't understand it immediately that you're doing something wrong. Literally, it's just like it takes time going back through it, using the dictionary for every single word that you think you have a handle on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do that a lot. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I think I know what deracinate means, but sometimes it's good to look at the the definition again and be like, Mm -hmm. okay, there are all of these additional meetings like I I generally understand it but there are these other like little threads that you can pull on in a definition or something like that so I that was the word I had to look up too though I'm not (laughs) even gonna lie that was definitely I was like dictionary.com the thesaurus.com here I am Um, (laughs) deracinate and then you know I've said before I'm a word nerd and you can even go deeper into that and like you know look at the etymology of the word and and you know, it helps mm-hmm. you kind of like with, helps you with kind of an analysis and and thinking about how, because I think a lot of authors, you know, they choose their words very carefully, right? Mm-hmm. One, one would hope. And so, you know, looking deeply into like the etymology and stuff will help you kind of understand what it is that they were trying to get at and why they might have chose deracinate over unrooting. So, mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Let's let's get into it. But I'm yes. excited to hear that. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's let's start with the frame for this article before we really get into the nitty gritty. So Douglas relies heavily on Afro-pessimist theory and black cultural theory. And so I would say that it's at the confluence of black feminist theory and Afro-pessimism. And mm-hmm. so namely, she cites Hortense Spiller's uh, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, which we discuss in episode two. Um, Jared Sexton, Frank Wilderson, Sylvia Winter, Sadia Hartman. And then she also employs black feminist theory written by Beth Ritchie and Andrea Ritchie. And so she argues that the category of gender does not encapsulate the gendered experiences of black people with violence. In fact, gender excludes black people, black trans and cis women in particular, 
because woman was defined in contradistinction to the black female body. So she uses black death as a black feminist theoretic to challenge the discursive capacity of gender to describe black people's experiences with the state. And so it kind of made me think of that um, feminist anthology, all the women are white, all the blacks are mm -hmm. men, but some of us are brave. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she's really taking apart feminism, which, you know, white feminism for being unable to contain black non-gender. And then she's kind of questioning whether Afro-pessimism deracinates or unroots gender or whether gender is always already inexistent because violence eliminates these, these like gender differences among black people. So lots, lots to go with there, lots to go with. I mean, to that last point, and something that I think I think about in my research is not whether violence eliminates black gender, but whether violence actually constitutes the category of black women versus mm. other women. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the main things that she kind of yeah. hones in on with this article. And she uses the conditions of mm -hmm. Corinne Gaines's state sanctioned murder. So the actual conditions of it, like how she was killed by mm -hmm. the state and also the reactions and the responses around it to really ground us in thinking around black gender and its connection to state violence. And if you are unaware, I do I do research on Corinne Gaines, so this is why I know this. But this month is actually the five-year anniversary of the traffic stop that would lead to the warrant that the SWAT team used to enter into her home to kill her. And so Douglas points to this absurdity of the Baltimore County using a militarized SWAT team to serve a warrant for traffic court. Like, the police stop you while you're driving, and if you don't go to court, they send the SWAT team after you. Hmm. Right. Which the world, um, which also includes other black people, justified that action by saying that she was insane and that she was a bad mother. And this is only possible because Corinne was a black woman. And I would argue very particularly because she was a black mother. Right. And she was robbed of her innocence as a victim of violence. And for a lot of people, her behavior served as enough explanation for the brutal force that she experienced and that ended her life and um, disabled her son. And so Douglas asserts that the violences of anti-Blackness affect those of all Black genders through various truths. So it's not just that violence of anti-Blackness affects all of us equally, but that each of us have various truths around the extent of that violence. And she brings us to her first set of questions. There's so many questions in this article. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but her first set of questions, right, which is how do we account for these different forms of Black death when the grandiosity of Black death, right, the magnitude of it, the visibility of it, the kind of gratuitousness of it, right, structures all of them. And then she asks us, right, where do the structural and the experiential collide and coalesce? Right. Can this conversation emerge in theory without tension? So this idea of the gendered experience of state violence, where does it come together? Where do they stay together? Can we talk about this in theory without button heads? Mm. I, I will also just add gratuitous. That is something that also comes out of Afro-pessimism, like the gratuitous nature of violence against Black people. So mm -hmm. so I think what, what Wilderson has has said or talked about is that when it comes to violence against indigenous people or white women or something like that, there's a logic to it. Mm -hmm. There's a logic to those violences. There is no logic. There's no 
reason for the violence that that black people are subjected to mm -hmm. in the U.S. So I also don't want to imply, he, I don't, he's not implying that there's a logic which means it's justified or that's not what it is. It's more like there's a reason in, in like if the state were to be a person in the mind of the state, it, there's a reason for it. So they mm -hmm. need to take land for the purposes of accumulation. So violence against indigenous people, as an example. There's a logic. But with black people, it's like there's no logic. And for that reason, it is gratuitous. It's, it's, it's in excess, right? right. Everything like, happens in excess. I'm speeding. So you stop me. You arrest me. In the Corinne Gaines case, right? I miscarry because she was pregnant at the time. Mm. Because of the stress of being in jail for speeding. I mean, you know, I don't show up to court because I have been such brutalized by the state. You send a militarized police force into my home. Mm -hmm. What else were they going to do but kill her is the question. Right. Right. But yeah, that logic, right? Because I was driving my car in a way that was whatever, I deserve to be killed by the state. That is not logical. Right. Mm -hmm. But that speaks to like what you're saying, the gratuitousness right. and the grandiosity of it. Yeah. We're going back to the question that Douglas wrote, can this conversion emerge in theory without tension? And it would seem that for Douglas, it can exist with minimal tension. So the justification of Corinne's murder exemplifies what Saidiya Hartman says in Scenes of Subjection, quote, this repression of violence constitutes female gender as the locus of both unredressed and negligible injury, unquote. So Douglas tells us that the black female gender, which is always undone, unrealized, and violated, is central to slavery and its afterlife. So she takes us back to African lands where black women were captured on the basis of their bodies. So while ungendering, a concept developed by Hortense Spillers, allowed the enslaved to be assigned labor on the plantation without regards to gender um, sex structured how people interacted with enslaved people. So their genitalia were measured, fondled, assessed for health and perceived reproductive capacity. So their blackness was then asserted through gendered violence in ways that exceeded norm normative definitions of gender. And so we see that in police violence against black women. Black women are not afforded the same protections, one could say. So I'm putting that in very deep air quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> against violence that makes violence against white women, for example, an aberration. Right. So Douglas tells us, right, that we can actually visibilize the ways in which violence makes or genders blackness in certain ways through encounters between law enforcement and black women. They illuminate the openness and gratuity of ungendering violence. So state violence against black women can be framed as private violence, which is a frame that Kimberly Crenshaw um, in the African-American Policy Forum is now developing. I don't know if you've if you've seen mm -mm. those posts. Um, it's a new frame that they're, they're trying to put forth about um, violence against black women is framing it as private violence. Mm. And they say this because most of the police violence that happens against black women occurs in their homes. Whereas against black men, it usually is out in public places like the street or the mm. store, things like that. And so I personally don't think that black women experience, quote, private violence because of the ways that the state actually intervenes into black women's lives and the ways that it actually disrupts what it means to be public and private. Mm -hmm. 
And what we see is that the narrative about the disposability and vulnerability of Black women is actually reinforced publicly through how we grieve violations against them. And so what happens in these mainstream feminist movements is that um, which Douglas has an explicit critique on in this article, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Searing critique on is that black women's vulnerability and their violent experiences are collapsed under the identity of woman. She says, this is why we must employ black death as a theoretic and an analytic, because it actually allows for us to uncouple this thing called identity, right? Mm -hmm. That actually crowds out the violence of anti-blackness. So what she means by that is that when we refuse to allow the grammar of suffering that lends discursive capacity to the terms of race, gender, or sexuality to crowd out that which cannot be said about the extent of anti-Blackness, right? So what she means by that is like we can't let coalition or solidarity along the lines of race, gender, or sexuality. So all the Blacks experience, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All the women experience, et cetera, right? All the gays, if you are a gays, you know, experience, et cetera, right? To crowd out what is what is actually the gratuitiveness of, of violence against Black people. Which is to say, in short, in Brendan's words, right? What y'all experience will never be to the same extent as what we experience as Black people. And so this grammar of suffering, which is like this kind of prescribed understanding of what it means to suffer, which kind of goes with that logical thing that you were mentioning earlier is, is what we read as a society as kind of typical women's experiences with violence. And they often fall far short of what black women actually experience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of the, one of the questions that she asked, and I might be skipping ahead here a little bit, but, you know, she says, where was the march for Corinne? So she's talking about the, you know, the women's march that happened in 2017, and they're all marching in the name of like, like, of, you know, Angela Davis and Marsha P. Johnson and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. And it's like, where's the march for, for Corinne? Like you're saying in your, you know, in your mission statement that you, you know, that you want justice for police and state sanctioned violence against black people, but you're not marching in the names of people who were killed by state sanctioned violence of black women who were killed in the name of state sanctioned violence. Because so. the only black woman they know is, I mean, come on, Rosa Parks. I mean, sorry, girl. I know we said <laughs> Stop we were going to bring you back. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, Harry is probably tired of them too. Like, that's, but that's when you point to black suffering, which is another thing when, when we think about, right, the black as a slave, right? When you, when people imagine black people suffering, what do they imagine, right? They imagine slavery, in that condition mm-hmm. of being tied to that, or they imagine some kind of abject condition or a lesser condition. And that is all wrapped up in anti-blackness, right? And thinking about Afro-pessimism for sure, right. for sure. Right. So black gender death framed the anxieties and demands of the women's march, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So I did skip ahead a little bit. <laughs> it's okay. You brought it back. Yeah. There you go. So, you know, so, Black gender death framed the anxieties and demands of the Women's March, yet Black women die in ways that are unimaginable or unthinkable for other women. So gendering is a violence that disorients Blackness and equates experiences that are not the same. Let me say that again. (laughs) Gendering is a violence that distorts Blackness and equates experiences that are not the same. Period. 
period, period. So the absence of critical reflection on the fact that Black people experience more than just increased vulnerability, this was in the mission statement, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not just an increased vulnerability. It is way deeper than that. Right. It's a proximity to death, right? Or actual death. Yeah. And I mean, there there was the part where, you know, she was talking about, oh, what was it? Uh, Jared Sexton, who talks about the trauma of representation, mm-hmm. which basically are like the images that are shared of Black death, which basically operate to remind us that we are all one step away from being killed mm-hmm. without any kind of like justice, with it, people can do it with impunity, etc. So anyways. Okay, so the Women's March in 2017 and the general panic after Trump's election, it was rooted in people's perception that their lives would be proximate to death like black people. They were like, oh, damn, we about to be some some niggers. You know, that's scary, though, ain't it? Isn't it scary? Isn't it, though? (laughs) So as I was just saying, the Women's March, they marched in the name of these black women revolutionaries. They acknowledged the effects of police brutality, but they didn't march for the women who actually died at the hands of police. There was a point where if you were watching it or if you read the think pieces that came after, they actually turned off the mic for Black trans woman leader Raquel Willis during her speech. Yeah. I saw that. I was like... And that's right when she was getting to talk about the actual lived experiences of and like precarities of black trans women and calling out the fact like, like, as you said, right, we told over here marching in the name of mm-hmm. changing women's lives. But where the black women at? Why am I one of the few? Uh, and they turn the mic off and they they want to hear it. They're like, well, you, we're all women, so it's <laughs> fine. You don't want to put your pussy hat on, girl. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I think what's I mean. So what black feminine black feminism does that white feminism simply cannot does not refuses to um, is recognize mm. that the normative category of woman does not include black women, and so it corrects the assumption that all women experience the same kind of gendered violence, and so it demonstrates the way that white feminism cannot reconcile that gender does not fully encapsulate the continuum of violence at the heart of U.S. antagonisms. And that, that kind of violence is underwritten by settler colonialism and slavery, of course. So as Douglas writes, women of color become racially othered by white feminist theories. And so I would add that black women become invisibilized. Often our needs contradict those of white women and other women of color. So basically, they theorize us into an abyss. Yep. bye black. Bye-bye, you know, and anti-blackness allows that, right? It actually collapses the intensity and the scope of black suffering such that it actually becomes indiscernible from violence experienced by others. And I would like to add to all of this, and I think Douglas speaks to this perfectly, right? It's like, what does it even mean to be, quote, woman when you are unprotected by patriarchy? So a lot of times people talk about patriarchal violence as something that Kills women, harms women, absolutely, 100,000% agree, destroy the patriarchy. But what does it Mm -hmm. mean when you are not even afforded the protections that patriarchy affords white women, right? And she talks about this um, in this work and also some of her other work by thinking about how we actually recognize what it means to be woman and what we recognize um, 
a woman is black by what can be done to her and through her, right? So mm. black women can experience violence and that violence cannot be redressed. And that actually affirms right, that they are black versus the violence that white women experience, right? It's There's a call for protection. Mm. There's a societal a societal push to end that violence because it actually, you know, there's a lot of people have theories around, you know, trying to protect white women because they are the ones who birth white babies. And so this whole push for the continuance of what it means to be white. And so white women are actually protected under patriarchy in ways that non-white women are not. Which is why they are so invested in its maintenance and in the maintenance of white supremacy. Literally. Well, like I said, right, you share a common interest mm-hmm. and that common interest is the protection that is afforded to you Literally. under a white supremacist patriarchal culture yeah can't be mad at us for pointing to that okay so <laughs> yeah so afropessimism actually permits an analysis of blackness that asks whether gender is applicable to the captive community so that's like horton spillers and thinking about ungendering right versus this kind of feminist project that attempts to write Black experiences into this category of gender that typically um, exemplifies white women's experiences. And both Black feminism and Afro-pessimism contend that gender, TM, um, <laughs> I like saying TM now, <laughs> does, <noticed>. not ad- <laughs> does not adequately tend to the inner workings of Black gender that actually might not be gender specific, which I know I just said a gender a bunch of times, right? But Basically saying that, like, actually the experiences of Black people, even though we have gendered experiences, right, might not actually be all that specific to our gender, but might be much more aligned with the experiences of our Blackness, right? And holding both of these theories, right, allows for us to actually avoid theorizing Black women into a void. So what you were talking about earlier, right? Of just mm-hmm. like theorizing us into the abyss. By holding these two together, we actually can avoid doing that. Mm-hmm. And so if you're interested in thinking about how that actually works, Zakia Iman Jackson um, has a book called Becoming Human, but also an article about theorizing in the void that I thought was really illuminating, but also one of those, it takes a few times to read <laughs> articles, um, as well as Evelyn Hammond's classic um, article about Black women as a void, for sure. Right. Yeah. I think you just you saying, I've used gender so many times in the sentence. It's like, <laughs> I think it's interesting. Douglas is really trying to unpack something that I, I think we don't have the words for yet Mm -hmm. and so I when I was reading I was kind of getting confused and it seemed like there was some slippage between you know when she's using gender versus when she's using black gender versus ungendering um and I think it's I think we can just put it to that but it just goes to show that it takes time it takes work and this is really just part of the conversation yeah you know the conversation of theory that it's all building on one another and somebody's going to come and be like, all right, Douglas did this dope work. I'm thinking with this other dope work. And now, you know, here, here's what I think, you know, we've been trying to convey over these like several generations, for example, mm-hmm. of scholars, you know. And then there are some people who hop in the pool and think they're doing something new. <laughs> we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. 
Douglas's scholarship is an example of kind of this intersection of Afro-pessimism and Black feminism and something that I imagine myself to be doing. Um, and I don't think mm-hmm. that Afro-pessimism in, and Black feminism actually have incongruent um, projects, but it definitely matters mm-hmm. who is doing the writing. Wink, wink. Um, <laughs> and if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. So, and asterisk that right gender is not just a woman's issue black cis men will continue to die and continue to kill us by the wayside of gender as they lament their inability to access real manhood defined by the white supremacist state with that being said Hmm. (laughs) perfect segue you know (laughs) let's bring on our guest um for our next segment what in the world what in the world like what in the world. So today we have with us Chloe Samala Fox, who is a filmmaker and a fifth year PhD candidate in anthropology at Columbia University. Hey. <laughs> Columbia <laughs> Anthro. Columbia Anthro in the house. In the house. Um, 60% of us are here. Um, her research <laughs> investigates the intersections between race and gender, sacrifice and ritual, violence and desire in South Africa. By way of Black critical theory and psychoanalysis, her work attends to the way Blackness animates and innervates anthropology's assumptive logics of recognition, reciprocity, and incorporation. So thank you so much for sitting with us today, Chloe. Welcome to the Zoom studio. Um, and we just like to get us started with, we want our listeners to know more about your work um, and how it's informed by Af- Afro-pessimism, if it is informed by it. Okay, yeah. So my research examines the historical and emergent dilemmas around reproductivity in contemporary South Africa. So in the post-1994 moment, um, which one scholar, Ziana Lategan, refers to as Mandela's magic trick of a new South Africa, um, and what the second president, Tabumbeki, called um, an African renaissance. and my work is trying to or I situate, situate my research in a context in which Black women are assaulted by a double bind that sutures race to reproduction. And so on the one hand, um, they're kind of invited to reproduce in the service of white capital, particularly during the eras of colonization, segregation, and then eventually apartheid. And then on the other hand, this sort of invocation to not reproduce precisely because they are the sort of bearers and responsible for this thing of Black pathology, which is to say excessiveness. Um, And in terms of this double bind, I kind of understand it to be not just about the sort of double entendre of the word labor, which is to say as work on the one hand and childbirth on the other, Mm. but a historical artifact that is subtended by comparative anatomy, phrenology, discourses in the 19th century, racial slavery as well, um, and then eugenics in the 20th century. Um, And I'm also thinking about the way in which efforts to limit black reproduction in South Africa earlier on, so early settlement, segregation, apartheid, um, understood by many South Africans to be a sort of black genocide has given way to a more neoliberal configuration 
in South Africa's actuarial age, um, which is sort of present moment, um, that understands the structural precarity that constitutes and devalues Black life through the metric of a thing called risk. And my premise in my work is to kind of say that the metric of risk is insufficient to understand what it is to be a Black person and to suffer. And so I ask what vocabularies and epistemologies of life, death, race, gender, violence and desire, um, how might the ancestral realm help us think through what the actual actuarial framework of risk cannot. And so in terms of what I'm thinking with, my project is focused on a, what I'm calling ancestrality. So kind of taking into account the active role that Amatlozi or the ancestral spirits have in black social life in South Africa, which while also taking into account the sort of vulnerability to premature death. So thinking with the sort of presence of death and the dead together. Um, and so ancestrality in that vein offers on the one hand, a sort of explanatory idiom for the sort of ruptures that characterize what it means to live, to die and not yet be born in South Africa. And it also offers mm. a sort of methodology. And in this problematic of reproduction or reproductivity, um, abortion is also kind of central to that. Um, I take it to be a sort of structure of interruption um, that engenders or produces understandings of life and death, um, politics and economics, understandings of what it means to have a soul. So the question of something like political ontology or being, and this connection between creative origin, mother, the sort of understanding of gender, the survival of the family, and the sort of very viability of civil society, or in this case, the nation state. So your dissertation <laughs> is about to be a whole, um, I mean, for lack of words, honestly, a game changer in thinking about the ways that blackness, womanhood, quote unquote, right? We're going to put those in quotes, right? Thinking about and the duties that come associated with that. So reproduction, um, the labor, which you, I would think you so astutely pointed to, right? The labor of reproduction, which is giving birth and also the affective labor that comes through. I think, yeah, you speak to affect, you speak to just thinking about the state forms of reproduction, social forms of reproduction, which I think is just really excellent. And I look forward to if you ever want somebody to read your dissertation, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, Chloe was one of the first people that I met when I came to Columbia, and she has been such an important part of my experience there, and I love her deeply, so it's just been wonderful um, to have you on the on the podcast. And if you're curious, <laughs> she is a Scorpio with a Taurus rising, rising. and a Taurus moon. Yes. There's a lot of Scorpio in the Zoom room today. You know? <laughs> Wait, listen, so. where's your Scorpio? Rising. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. A lot of intensity, a lot of, look, you're going to get what you're going to get from us. Like that's, that's what we bring to the table. So I just, I, I had a question because, you know, this episode we've, we've kind of gotten into Afro-pessimism and Brendan and I were like, we're not experts. Mm-hmm. But so you're talking about blackness and reproduction and labor in South Africa. And I think one of the critiques that's leveled at Afro-pessimism is that it's very U.S. centric. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, I'm interested to hear because, you know, as many people know, and maybe there are some who, out there who don't, South Africa has a very different conception and, and like structure around race than the U.S. Mm-hmm. So how, you know, how does Afro-pessimism then become useful to you as something that some people argue is U.S.-centric? Yeah, I'll begin maybe by like thinking about what it is, or perhaps mm. you could all tell me what you think it is, and I can also <laughs> tell you what I understand it. So yeah, so we <laughs> defined it earlier and we defined it as, um, so we use a series of definitions. I'm scrolling up trying to find exactly where we said it, but um, we pulled the definition from the Oxford Bibliographies mm-hmm. entry that was written by Patrice Douglas um, and others. And, and Dr. Triff, I think, yeah. Uh, yes. And um Afro-pessimism is a lens of interpretation that accounts for civil society's dependence on anti-Black violence, a regime of violence that positions Black people as internal enemies of society. So in that definition, right, it it doesn't read U.S.-centric, but I think it does become kind of, people see it as like a U.S. theory about this. Right. And I I would argue that, and I would agree with the assessment, because yeah, I know that definition that it is in fact yeah it is an interpretive framework I would also call it a hermeneutic or sort of a way yeah a way to perform a reading I would say the locus of that reading takes place at a level of abstraction a same a degree of abstraction that is similar to that of something like Marxism something like feminism something like psychoanalysis Mm. And so sort of in Afro-pessimism's framework, which draws heavily from, as you all probably know, the work of um, France Fanon, um, which argues that, who argues that um, the Black is always a phobogenic object whose presence is the way in which society kind of works through its trauma. Mm. And that in Mm. itself, for Afro-pessimists, so... The Black for Fanon is a stimulus to anxiety. And then I think Jared Sexton says that anxiety is the anxiety of antagonism, which is to say a sort of conflict would actually be the wrong word, but antagonism, which is to say that which is in fact irresolvable. So like not a dialectic, a synthesis cannot actually be achieved. And so in that creation, in that sort of configuration, Afro-pessimism is, is, uh, presupposing or arguing that the presence of Blacks or the sort of, uh, yeah, the presence of Blacks in and of of themselves stimulate anxiety. And perhaps that definition of what constitutes Blackness might vary, but at base, Blackness is the anxiety. And so if we think of Afro-pessimism um, we should also think of it not just as a meta theory, but actually as a framework that is also intervening into the field of like critical ethnic studies, for example. 
So on the one hand, there's the sort of move that Afro-pessimism is trying to make when I spoke about degrees of abstraction from the level of the experiential. And when we spoke about lived experience, I think we can kind of see why that move is important and useful to the sort of political, onto political ontological, which some people could also call um, structural. And another intervention, and Jared Sexton kind of lays this out in one of his essays, um, Afro-Pessimism and the Unclear World, that the other intervention is to understand racism itself as a relation that is grounded in anti-blackness rather than white supremacy. And that intervention is important because it actually says that we're not saying that it's anti-blackness or racism, it's actually that racism is anti-blackness. And that is the thing that then structures the sort of division between the blacks and the non-black rather than the whites and the non-whites. Um, and so I think with that logic, one can say, Blackness is articulated in the U.S. via the one-drop rule, for example, in some cases, um, or kind of adjudicated via the one-drop rule in certain instances. Um, in South Africa, that's not the case. There are now, or I mean, so if there are sort of four racial classifications now in South Africa that took several years to kind of solidify and crystallize. There were several attempts on the part of the National Party, for example, to adjudicate who was the Black person, who was mm. in between. There were also moments where, similar to here, that one could sort of change status. But what didn't actually change was the sort of opposition that is actually irreconcilable between whiteness mm. and Blackness. And we also see that operating in places like the Caribbean, where they have multiple gradations and right. hundreds of ways to yeah, say that you course. are between black and white. And all of that is to kind of, um, the, I mean, and the, the sort of end, I mean, the upshot is actually, you just don't want to be black, anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's kind of, that's where Afro-pessimism intervenes. Um, I think it's at that level of abstraction. Right. Mm. And it's like in this push or move away from being black, right? It's because being black comes with a whole set of its own meanings, right? About abjection, about your slot in life, about what's allowed for you, what rights you have, what right to life, quote unquote, even, you know, rights in of itself, I think is a problematic framework to think about how we live, but if we're thinking about the state and how the state structures it, right? The right to live, the right to die, the right to be killed, um, right? So when you accept or call yourself black, that means moving through a certain or particular social position in which you experience a set of violences, right? On on a abstracted level and a like on a symbolic level and a material level, Um which is very important to me when I think about what it means to be black, right? It's not just, it's not just who your ancestors are, right? It's, it's a set of experiences that we'll definitely get into when we talk about like what are our topics for today. I'm yeah. trying to think about where do we, where do we want to start first? How, how do we get in there? Well, I mean, I guess, cause I would also add, I would also add to that. It's, it's about a set of experiences, but on the other hand, it is actually about how the world experiences us 
as an interruption Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. experience in a way, because Mm -hmm. it's actually about the way um, in which we stimulate anxiety. Um, There's a way in which it's actually, or so rather it's about, it's not actually so much about how you see yourself, but actually how the world sees you. Um, and I think that actually um, that is almost what the sort of Markle situation reveals. And I, I would also add another point, sorry. Oh, I'd also add in terms of um, what Afro-pessimism's intervention is around Blackness. Um, when I spoke about the, the degree of abstraction that it operates on, um, it's also trying to point us to the sort of paradigmatic status of Blackness, which is to say it actually cannot be analogized. Um, and so the issue, so Afro-pessimism is also kind of, and this is why I said it was a sort of meta theory, because it's actually trying to challenge the assumptive logics that undergird things like critical theory, so different critical theoretical discourses. Um, so if someone, so if feminism's intervention is um, women are um, a crisis in the structure of kinship, which is what someone like Haja Silverman, who is a psychoanalytic feminist, would say, um, Afro-pessimism would say actually um, Blackness throws into crisis the categories of woman and kinship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it also kind of throws into crisis or like con- Blackness actually conditions what we understand violence to be. Blacks are, subje- are subjected to a thing called gratuitous violence. And that's what separates us from, in Afro-pessimism's hermeneutic or analytic, from that who has the un problematic status of the human so their violence is contingent and a response to a transgression the violence against the black is not the response to a transgression right and we we talked Mm. about that a little bit earlier where we talked about just kind of how what you're saying which is that Something as simple as walking down the street can result in death right and how that it does not abide by a certain type of logic in and of itself, but it is a logic, right? Isn't it? The logic is anti-blackness and Afro-pessimist theory kind of really points to that. As you said, it's a meta theory kind of unlodges what we assume to be reasonable, right? Because there, what, what does it mean to be reasonable when confronted with black people and violence against black people? So where do we yeah. want to move? Where do we want to go? <laughs> We're talking about the way in which the black is always is abject. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. And I think that some people are talking about, you know, there's a risk in framing everything through this like totalizing anti-blackness. And so I was, you know, I, I watched a little bit of an Angela Davis talk and, you know, and the feedback one. This, yes. <laughs> she's talk, see, you, you know, I know that talk, we, yes. you're the right person for this. So, you know, she's saying anti-blackness, it's something that's being leveled at non-black people of color it contributes to like a divestment from coalition and it hides, you know, what I think she was saying is like it hides this kind of toxic black nationalism. So I think one of the questions is why is anti-blackness distinct from racism or other forms of white supremacist thought and action? And, you know, is making that distinction really politically useful or politically strategic when, you know, the ultimate goal is freedom? 
I was going to say just to hop in here, just as a provocation, I think a lot of mm-hmm. times people think that in order for Black people to be free, that coalition or solidarity is necessary. And as I've said previously, right, if we're, we are to take the words of our of Black women, seriously, who've written about this, right, who say that if a Black woman is not free, then no one is free, then what does what what is coalition and what does it do, right? If, in fact, if freedom looks like a Black woman living in her, at her free, is that, right? Then what, like, what does coalition do? Well, because I think also, and this is what Sexton raises in the unclear world, is on the one hand, people are suspicious of the sort of Afrocosmism's potentiality on the one hand. On the other, we all seem to have a tacit knowledge that to speak of a free Black is, in fact, a contradiction in terms. In terms of coalition, and I am aligned with Brendan here in the sense that, in the sense that I don't think coalitional politics are viable in terms of something that we can provisionally call Black freedom. But I also hesitate to use that word freedom because... Um, mm like the work of uh, Saidiya Hartman, for example, tells us that freedom is in fact sutured and requires the sort of intensities and anxieties produced by slavery. In terms of Afro-pessimism's intervention, um, there is also the question of what is freedom actually, what is the sort of operation that freedom What is freedom's operation, I guess, would be the question. Um, Is it about making the world better for the sort of native who is at the center of indigenous studies, post-colonial studies? Is the goal to kind of make the world better for uh, the woman who is at the center of women's and gender studies? Is the project to kind of make the world better for the worker who is at the center of our sort of critiques of political economy, is mm. the goal to make the world better for the Blacks or for Black people. Um, Afro-pessimism would say, no, all of those aims and goals are kind of believe in or kind of presuppose that we're living in a world that's reparable. Mm. Whereas Afro-pessimism is saying, actually, it's the explosion of the world that's required. Yeah, I mean, people people take that as another issue. They're like, well, on the one hand, you're you know, on the one hand, you're saying there's like they're operating on a on a very high level of of abstraction, and so the question that people want to know is like, well, then what can we do with it? What can we do? And so if we accept the logics of Afro pessimism, then it's like there are only two options: anarchy or a kind of black nationalism and people are like this is this is a lot and i would argue <laughs> and, I, and i and maybe this would be a good time to kind of think through what it actually what the sort of pessimism and afro pessimism is meant to signify or the work is actually yes. trying to do um to answer that question but um i would argue that I mean, I think also just to say that, I think that would actually be a kind of misreading of what an analytic does because they're all operating at degrees of abstraction. Otherwise, you just have an assemblage of individual experiences. And as we know, those are also not reconcilable as such because we could also, if we were to kind of think through the sort of granular 
differentials at the level of skin tone, for example, um, <laughs> I'm not sure what that would actually offer. Um, but in terms of the sort of pessimism of Afro-pessimism, there are on the one hand these sort of colloquial affective understandings of pessimism that position it in a sort of binary opposition to something like optimism. And that opposition mm -hmm. that they sort of posit, or that many people seem to posit, um, are inflected by Judeo-Christian understandings of um, faith, of hope, of virtue, redemption, redemption where um, things like pessimism then become bad, and then optimism good. And in order to kind of understand the work of Afro-pessimism, one has to kind of completely do without that binary opposition and actually not, or so to understand on the one hand that Afro-pessimism is not actually operating on the level of affect of individuals or interpersonal relationships, or, and then also not to kind of moralize, there's no sort of moralizing of optimism or pessimism as one's affect either, but it's just that Afro-pessimism isn't adjudicating about the sort of inherent goodness or badness of these affects. So whether one is optimistic or pessimistic in the sort of colloquial sense is not actually what is at stake. Actually, I think the more important thing is, um, is the allusion to like uh, Gramsci, the Italian Marxist who was considered to be one of the, the sort of most important Marxist theorists after Marx, even though Marx did not consider himself a Marxist, um, <laughs> who wrote about kind of like class culture, the state, and then was imprisoned by Mussolini um, for much of his life. Um, but he was the one, actually, I think it was uh, a, a French person who I now cannot remember, but it's most attributed to Gramsci, this idea of pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Um, and he used that to articulate what he understood to be the socialist conception of the revolutionary process. And he was specifically, and it's interesting that you brought up anarchism for this reason, because Gramsci was actually saying the anarchists are operating at a level of abstraction that cannot actually understand the force and coercive power of a thing called the state. They do not understand that the necessary relation between the worker and his freedom is the establishment of a worker's state, which is something that the Russian Revolution kind of showed us. The social pes socialist pessimism that Gramsci is like putting forth, rather, putting forth, is cognizant of and keeps in mind the sort of intensity of the ravages wrought by World War II, or World War I, sorry, on the working class. The fact that they were dispersed on the one hand, they were joining unions and other sort of coalitions, conglomerations. Um, they did so not because they were kind of freely able to act as political subjects, but rather that they were so deeply under the sort of coercive force of the capitalist mode of production. Um, and so for Gramsci to assume that, um, and he, this is, these are his words, to express their own autonomous historical will, 
he's speaking of workers. So he's saying the sort of assumption that workers can express their autonomous historical will that's just like deep within them, that would be sort of naive to think. Um, and so pessimism of the intellect on Gramsci's part instead demonstrates like that one recognizes that situation one finds oneself, the working class in this case, in his case rather, um, recognizing how bleak the situation is on the one hand and understanding also that the basis for revolutionary action is not actually something that exists somewhere in the ether. It requires intense organization, um, regimentation, I don't know if I want to use that word, but that's the thing that would require the sort of spurring of a sort of revolutionary creativity, as he called it. If Gramsci is positing that with his sort of, with this sort of slogan, um, that one can, in the revolutionary process, transform the worker into, and he calls it, a massive antagonistic identity formations that would kind of disrupt the alienation, exploitation, wage slavery that constitutes being a worker, Wilderson is interested in how that logic falls apart for the Black in terms of what Gramsci proposes. That actually the Black is a scandal to Gramsci's entire framework, that there's no sort of way to like, mobilize the Black who comes into being through unwaged, Mm-hmm. Unwaged racial slavery. Unwilling, yep. Unwaged Unwilling labor. Unwaged right. racial slavery who comes into being via terror. That mm-hmm. logic does not, it's insufficient. But I think the, pessimist, the pessimism piece is important because it actually says it, what I revealed, I think, through Gramsci and like, arriving to Wilderson is actually that Afro pessimism is not, in fact, pessimistic about Black revolution revolutionary potentiality. Hmm. So if black so if Afro pessimism is not pessimistic about black revolutionary potentiality, it's actually saying that it's possible, but we also cannot assume, for example, that our um, like the sort of the realm of the cultural or like the symbolic mm-hmm. can be the thing that will allow us to overcome the terror that actually conditions the emergence of the black to begin with. Blackness is not about incorporation into a symbolic order as such. Blackness Mm -hmm. is about um, coming into being via brute physical force. And so Afro-pessimism also, I would say, is decidedly not a nationalistic project because it would also, it's not operating in a logic that thinks the nation state is something to be preserved. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, and I think Gramsci's critique of nihilism or anarchism is also good because Afro-pessimism doesn't find it useful to kind of abstract the state into this sort of free-floating entity to oppose. And on the other hand, or and additionally rather, it's not, Afro-pessimism is not nihilism. Afro-pessimism doesn't say that there's nothing to be done. Frank Wilderson, for example, he was a member of Mkwonto Wesizwe, which was the armed wing of the ANC. So materially, we could actually say he is one of the few scholars, we could say, in Black studies that has actually had anything to do with what we would call armed struggle. 
Um, tea, the tea, <laughs> the tea. <laughs> and I think I'm trying to remember if you said this, but actually, if we go back to a sort of colloquial understanding of optimism, we could almost say Afro-pessimism is optimistic because it actually tells Black people that we, in fact, have nothing to actually lose, even though we think mm. we do. I want to underscore what you just said here, right? We actually don't have anything to lose, even though we think we do. And part of the fiction that we have been sold, right, through through the terror, through the subjection, right, is that we actually have everything to lose. As the former president would say, look at your life now, Black people, where, like, Look at your life now. Look at your condition now, right? And if and if it is in fact true, right, that we are at the lowest of the low, then where else can we go but up? Yeah, it, it's it says yeah. There's nothing to lose. Also, like it, it's it can't it cannot condemn looting. It can only condemn. I mean, it, and not even condemn. It doesn't condemn or celebrate. I think it in fact assesses and it's like trying. And so as a framework. And a hermeneutic is trying to understand how do we under, how is looting, how do we understand looting and how do we understand something like protest when blackness is always already criminalized, it's always already insurgent. And so these sort of distinctions about what constitutes the sort of good activist versus the sort of unruly one actually become completely irrelevant to the discourse. Uh, I was going to say, and so getting and thinking along those lines, right, when we think about um, this kind of incommensurability and earlier we talked about, or I talked about how one of the critiques of Afro-pessimism is this, a lot of people are invested in this idea of racial reconciliation and this idea of progress, right? So we're not enslaved anymore right we're not forced to work even though hello um right we're not forced to work (laughs) on plantations anymore like our ancestors were white people aren't you know cracking the whip at us anymore even though you know i'm gonna just leave a space there for that right so it's like as you were saying chloe like this like focus on this pessimist part as if it was an affective stance versus what I think is like a, a grounding in a reality which from mm-hmm. which we can only do political action, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because there is so there are so many examples that we have of what you're talking about, that kind of symbolic integration or cultural integration, right? Which we could we could call literal integration, racial integration, mm-hmm. representation. Mm-hmm. We have so many examples of people. We have our black billionaires, our black millionaires, our black celebrities. Who mm-hmm. even in their class status, right, make the least compared to their non-black peers, yes. right? Who Beyonce and Jay-Z have all this money, but when it, you know, when push comes to shove, honey, y'all's images are being replaced by Meghan Markle and Harry and mm. um, Princess Diana, right? And it's like, yeah, that image, I don't know if you saw that, the image of um, Beyonce and Jay-Z at the Louvre, the Louvre, is that how it's pronounced? But the museum in front of Mona Lisa, I think, or whatever. Mm. And then they did like a cartoon representation where they basically supplanted Beyonce with Meghan Markle and supplanted uh, Jay-Z with 
uh, Harry and then had Princess D- Diana behind them. And so this like even even you are even Beyonce and you are even not enough. Right. So it's mm. like like and when we talk about who is and who isn't black, who is and who isn't subjected to the violence of blackness, like all of these things have to be held honestly in reality. And I think a lot of people are living are trying to move and live in different types of reality and, and, and calling that optimism when it is actually, I think I don't see it as such. I see it as projections. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. So <laughs> since you, you know, since you brought up Meghan Markle, we were going to talk about this and we don't obviously want to give her a large amount of space because, you know, so much has been said. She is the face that launched a thousand think pieces, <laughs> the the a reference to Helen of Troy, uh, the face that launched a thousand ships. Um, but it's actually for me a reference to scandal because I'm far too common to know anything about Greek mythology <laughs> offhand. <laughs> but Brendan uh, on our Instagram, um, she basically suggested something pretty controversial. Controversial. Yeah, people were big mad. Yeah, people were so mad. <laughs> Which was basically that Meghan Markle is not a black woman. And so I'm, you know, I'm sorry I'm going to play devil's avocado here. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, want to give Brendan like an opportunity to expand, you know, address, address the haters. Um, You know, is this not a case of identity policing based on, you know, pseudo race science? You know, we're critical of TERFs, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists, you know, who also police the boundaries of womanhood. Are you policing the boundaries of blackness by saying that she's not black? And actually, I would also ask the question where, yeah, maybe where where are we locating the the debacle? Yeah, I think um, I have like my own little rant about this so I'm going to address different pieces of it and to kind of get to what you were saying the last bit of what you were saying Alyssa um, I don't think that you can be trans exclusionary and be radical or feminist I think you actually that those terms lined up together negate each other Um, (laughs) and so when people hear it people yeah like when people (laughs) say turf it's like actually if you're trans exclusionary how are you how are you not just upholding the transphobic system and if so if you're trying to say that certain people aren't women because of their anatomy then you're actually speaking to anti-blackness right which is a history of what established what it means to be a woman through this kind of biological essentialism which the Kambahi River Collective made sure that we underscored that we should not run to when thinking about what it means to be a quote-unquote woman because those of us who are black cisgender women right our sex that way actually do not even fit that definition so with that being said um the debacle around Meghan Markle, which to me seems to be kind of like moot, is people claiming, and I would say black people, black women namely, claiming Meghan as black um, and then like projecting a kind of black experience onto her because of what she experienced at the palace. Um, and I'm of the belief that like a black experience is one that is both embodied So not just what you identify as, but the way that you were saying, Chloe, like what the world sees you as as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also ancestral. 
So not just I have a, a black grandmother or a black parent, but all, yes, that is important for blackness, right? Not just something that 23andMe can authorize by saying you're 11% Cameroonian or whatever, right? But actually an experience that's marked by the violence of anti-blackness, right? So like you're saying, black, the black as a social position being brought into the world through terror and through violence, right? That is still ongoing and that is still experienced by people and maybe at variant levels, but I don't think that Meghan Markle experiences that kind of violence. And I think that I, I understand why people want her to be black because if she is then black, right? She embodies what actually the colors, the imaginations of what the perfect black woman is, right? She embodies that through her non-blackness. Um, and she also allows for black women to like believe in this kind of princess narrative, right? That somebody one day is going to whisk us all away from this. Um, and she's allowed a pathway for us to see ourselves in fairy tales that are actually exclusionary towards us. And the reality is actually for most black women, which we all know, right? Which is why we're, we're vested in believing this is that it's not true. We always save ourselves. And so the debacle for me is that we've extended our we're all we're got ethos to this woman that that's allowed us to survive right to this non-black woman of African descent who intentionally moved through the world as biracial as if anti-blackness doesn't affect non-black people and as if her experiences threatened her survival, even though she said she felt suicidal because of what was said to her with she was able to leave the palace and still exist as someone with a, in her life with her husband with her class status with her fame right her survival was not threatened by what happened to her but a lot of black people especially darker skinned black women were projecting that kind of experience um, onto her. And I thought, I thought it was a deep investment in a one drop rule that treats blackness as a contaminant. Mm. Um, that says, you know, you got one drop of black blood in you. That's it, period. As if we haven't evolved from that thinking. And if we, if we are still in, I don't know. And for me, it's like if Meghan Markle, who doesn't necessarily have an embodied experience of blackness, can be black, then you know, why are we, why were we so mad about Jessica Krug and Rachel Dolenzal, who for all intents and purposes, mm. like they weren't black, right? And they're not black. And they laid claim to blackness and people were upset. But Meghan Markle fashioned herself as a woman to move through the world in a similar way as a white woman, right? So, and also to add to my little rant, right? Like it was not necessarily Meghan herself, that threatened the crown, right? It was the specter of her black ancestors. Because if you look at mm. Megan, right? The, any concern about the skin color of her baby is ridiculous if you look at her. It was through looking <laughs> at her, if it's like through looking at her mother, right? Like her ancestors, her mother, her grandmother, right? That fear or that terror of that black person coming, but not Megan herself, because if that were so, she would not have even been proximate to the palace in the first place. Mm. Harry knew not to bring no... But I think this is precisely it. I think she's actually, in fact, the limit case. The limit case. Can you say say more on that? Um, 
because okay so i have several thoughts um <laughs> on the one hand i think a lot of what's like operating in the experience and the sort of structural position in which megan markle finds herself and also for sort of the sort of collective us which is to say um the collective us which is actually constituted um by a sort of collective collective white unconscious i would say um mm -hmm. so even if we are sort of interpolated and are black structurally um Fanon also tells us that the sort of unconscious that inhabits us also too is a white one so we also have these sort of um violent fantasies that are white violent fantasies that are actually constitutive of our psychic edifices too um and so i say all of that because i think there's a thing of what sexton calls borrowed institutionality so this kind of way of attempting to be in ways that one can never be and so this attempt on the part of black folks to adjudicate around whether Meghan Markle is black or not whereas we also know at the same time that that it's never been ours to adjudicate it's actually a sort of condition that emerges as we've said through the sort of brute force violence um Meghan also was kind of caught in that trap when she thought she could be easily incorporated accepted mm -hmm. in the interview she uses the word protection and security mm -hmm. a lot hmm. and actually i was constantly thinking when i was watching it um about sort of steve because understanding of whiteness as that which has the monopoly on comfort and security mm -hmm. um mm. and so she was just she kind of assumed and she even says i naively assumed that they would protect me and that and again she so on the one hand she's narrating her lived experience and her experience seems to sort of be easily available and transposable onto the experiences of um black women like you'd mentioned um people kind of see a rhyme in their lived experience with this person who's sort of found herself in the sort of locus of imperial power at a level that's not even symbolic but it's like it's like at the sort of look like you right there you at the center of it yeah at the sort of <laughs> symbolic it's, it's blood is running yeah. in your veins yeah. like, <laughs> like the symbolic the imaginary and the real like all together this is where like power is concentrated and as we sort of adjudicate whether or not she's black we're trying to kind of say on the one hand to identify her as black is to kind of um minimize or sort of negate the experience of say a darker skin black woman who would enter into buckingham palace but we also have to understand that that's actually not possible that's kind of why i alluded to megan as the sort of limit case the queen has determined that megan has the sort she like the sort of anxiety over the darkness of her baby in fact reveals the way in which blackness itself is the stimulus to anxiety and brendan earlier you'd kind of spoken mm -hmm. about um this sort of question of reproduction 
and also that's something that's I am trying to or I have to kind of account for in my work the way in which the sort of separation between women white women and black women was a, a matter of determining or saying that the difference between black people and white people was a matter of speciation um, and that's something um, who writes, so someone like Zakia Jackson writes about that and she also is kind of tracing the sort of biocentric, scientific, eugenicist, phrenological, all of those sort of discourses around classification. So Linnaeus and all of those people, how actually because of those discourses, the female sex, the human female sex or the homo sapiens female sex, Lichen is analogized to other sort of species, human, or sorry, other species, plant and animal. And so the question of species differentiation always hinges on the question of how does the species reproduce itself? And so there is always an investment on about in how does, what happens when a black person reproduces? How does, what are the sort of what are the sort of racial characteristics that we can then transpose onto racial inferiority? So sort of like the head size, lip size, all of those things that we know that we can kind of identify as belonging to a eugenicist discourse. Those are the ways in which black women were responsibilized for black inferiority writ large because of their sort of status as those who birth the species and so i like that's the sort of anxiety that i locate in the question they ask is markle's baby going to be how dark is the baby going to be this sort of question of and so and so it's almost like if the queen says megan is black then it's actually like then megan is indeed black and it's actually and i say that like in reference to, and it's interesting because Megan is like American and then is going to England. Mm -hmm. And it's like the way in which something like, I would say that part of Sequitur Ventrum actually does and like undoes Megan in a way. So mm -hmm. the way in which that sort of British civil law was then exported to the US colonies and has its sort of origins in like Roman law or what have you. Um, that says it's, it says that the mother is the one who determines the sort of race of the, the child. And yeah, in fact, Megan's mother is black. But then the other question of, so on the one hand, her mother is actually black. So that's actually more than a sort of one drop rule. On the other hand, people want to say that actually that sort of logic is insufficient because there is the sort of leaning back onto another eugenics logic. So people seem to actually be saying, I feel if we kind of like strip away the like component, like the sort of accessories to like the discourse, they're saying, okay, so the one drop rule is insufficient, but the paper bag test must actually be brought back into, into place. Hmm. Because I guess for me, the question is like, what is accomplished by saying Megan is not black? It doesn't actually change 
the sort of totalizing force of anti-blackness but and at the same time like what the anxiety over the birth of her child reveals is actually this is like the sum the zero degree sight of the anxiety that blackness engenders on the other hand there's like the the kind of question it's like do we want people to divest from their blackness is that sort of like the end goal like is the aim to say that okay you must if you identify as black we've kind of adjudicated that you do not so you must divest from that but in terms of the sort of transformation transformational potentiality i'm like not really kind of yeah i don't know i don't see it i think someone like jessica krug is actually really interesting i was like ah when you said that um because what Jessica Krug revealed to us was that again black people cannot actually decide who is black she was accepted as black by a university a whole university who hired her as a black a diversity hire in a history department she uh said she was black in her political organizing work she was accepted by a bunch of black activists as black with the notable exception of uh black women for the most part from what i understand and actually i i met her actually randomly this past summer at a barbecue <laughs> but but no i think that the like cuz i think actually what jessica crack feels to us is her also her sort of the way she narrated her own story of emergence mm-hmm. as a black woman mm-hmm. was, was through the rape the rape of a black, a black woman. woman a mythical black woman a mythical yeah. black woman but then at the same time none of that and it's like even that still does not become enough to tell us that she's not black it's not enough for a series of black faculty members to have receipts that she's not black it's only when jessica decides that she's not black that she is not black and i think that's actually the thing that's unfortunate but it's like in fact the violence that we must contend with that actually there is a sort of i mean so people like hartman and wilderson say that fungibility so the sort of infinite substitutability and then zakia jackson speaks of plasticity so the way blackness can actually be subhuman superhuman human actually just mm-hmm. like according to what the situation requires it's a matter without form that can do whatever we need it to do spiller says it's about being for the captor and i think that's something we have to like really take seriously the fact that it's actually not about the the fact that black people are dehumanized it's just that actually what blacks experience most is like the violence of humanization the fact that lo- we i mean we're subject to law and that law is often meant to kind of punish as Sylvia Hartman kind of tells us i think megan reveals the sort of yeah the the sort of problem that we have with adjudicating what blackness is at the level like by black people and like how do we not rely on sort of like and jared sexton he calls it um he says 
He says, we need a conception of non-biological racial embodiment that disarticulates interracial sexuality from miscegenation and resituates racialization in a field of power, a political ontology of violence rather than a specious genetic inheritance or dubious phenomenology of perception. And because what's really interesting is, for me, is that like, eventually when one tries to kind of arrive at a conclusion that is apart from, I think, part of sequitur ventrum, if we're being kind of most brutal about it, one actually will devolve into a eugenicist discourse. One will eventually, as I've seen in conversations, one will eventually say, well, actually, Meghan Markle's Black, but clearly Mariah Carey's like, Black. Or people will say, actually, no, Trevor Noah is not Mariah Carey, is not Rashida Jones, is not like, you know? And I'm like, but what is the metric? And then to get people to articulate the metric, they will start talking about hair texture. They'll be like, no, but she's clearly 3C, don't you see? And it's like, well, I mean, I do see, and I understand the impulse, but we have to kind of ask what the aim is. But I think that's like the thing. It's like, actually, we have to reckon with like how sort of totalizing or like, I mean, I think plastic is just, yeah, the good word. I mean, I guess, I, I think, and I know, I guess it's kind of like a glitch thing to say after you said <laughs> okay. all that, but okay. like, I think that, because you're right, like there's a eugenicist discourse, right? So it's like, oh, well, her nose or her hair or her this and that, that. But there is, there is a way that people move through the world that makes them more proximate to violence, right? Absolutely. That Meghan Markle does not embody. And it, and I don't think that, yes, it is through her body that this baby comes forth. They have questions about, but it's not about Megan herself because Harry would not have brought her home if it would have been about Megan herself. It, it's about her ancestors, right? So it's about her mother. It's about like the blackness that's in the background. I think it's about the anxiety that she stimulates. She stimulates anxiety, but it's connected to her ancestry. It's not connected necessarily to her embodied presence. But I I would say it is. I would say, I mean, it's like part of it is, I think part of it is operating at the level of um, sort of, yeah, fantasy mixed with desire, mixed with repulsion, all of that. And it's like those things actually become like, there is, I mean, they're indistinguishable from the, there's no Megan. Like, I think this is also the thing that Megan herself kind of, does as a, a sort of trick she's like well, she's it's an like, actress yeah yes exactly and so <laughs> she's it's an actress like, right? yeah because it's actually like oh this is somehow you've made your like uh your encounter your interface with empire has actually become about kate middleton being mean to you and so at best if megan were to i mean actually that's maybe not generous but on the one hand she's made this a thing about Whose tears matter here? Because it's so interesting. If you watch the interview, one of the first things Oprah says is, did you make Kate cry? And then Megan goes, <laughs> you know, I, I was just constantly asking myself about that. Why won't they tell the truth? And it's like, and so we finally, in the interview, we get the truth. And the truth is, in fact, there was a, like, a dispute over the flower girl dresses, but it wasn't Megan who made um, 
Kate, it wasn't Kate, Megan who made Kate cry. It was in fact Kate who made Megan cry. Like Kate, it's almost like Megan's like, my tears can never rise to the level of Kate's tears. And it's like, obviously. And for me, it'd be like, yeah, it's because you're a Negro, Negress. But I don't think, I think she cannot be a Negress and that still be true, right? Like, I think she can be a non-Black person who was affected by anti-Blackness and whose lived experiences are affected by it. Like, I think she can be a non-Black person of African ancestry whose experiences can be conditioned by anti-Blackness, but then to like, to liken it to something like massage noir, which is supposed to en- encompass the violent experiences of black women from those that look like Megan, who I would call a non-black woman of African descent to a dark skinned, you know, trans disabled woman walking down the street who would have very, very different experiences, right? When Even when it comes to empire, when it comes to power, when it comes to the police, when it comes to men, but those are all operating in a sort of grid. There's like a sort of grid matrix. And so, yes, they're like points of pressure intensity that make a black trans woman who is living in New York City much more available to violence. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there's a sort of, the sort of, symbolic and literal availability of blackness encompasses all of those sort of individual positions. And I think that can be true even if Megan is not black. But it's actually, and this is kind of why I say part of sequitur ventrum um, traps her or like makes her and unmakes her. Because it's like the end of the debate should be like, oh no, look at her mom, she's black. But actually people don't do that. Then people want to say, actually, but so, so while they're saying, look at her mom, she's black, they also want to talk about her sort of ambiguously ethnic phenotype or what have you. And on the other hand, you have the sort of queen saying, oh, will the baby be black? And it's kind of like, actually, that is precisely the thing that makes people black. It's like, that's precisely I would say the sort of violence of blackness and it's like the additional violence and I think this is what you're narrating is that Megan's like because I mean I part of what I hear you saying is like okay if Megan's experience is bad if she thinks that's bad she doesn't know how bad it could actually possibly get and that's actually true both of those things can be true but it's also like there's no like empire I mean, the proximity to empire, yes, is conditioned by her appearance in the same way that uh, Kamala Harris is the sort of first black vice president. And that's the limit. Mm -hmm. It's that. It can only be Kamala Harris. It can only be, and it's like, yes, Kamala Harris and Barack Obama look like their cousins. That is not (laughs) incidental (laughs) to empire's, like, working. It's like, yeah, then they're kind of also, like, then, yeah, then you have Condoleezza Rice, yeah, what's his name? Colin Powell, all of that. Um, but I think the sort of operation more broadly is the same. I don't know. I take real, I guess, a real issue with that, with that piece of it because it doesn't actually operate the same. Well, it doesn't in, operate. In my, it doesn't articulate. Life. It doesn't articulate the same. But it's like it's 
source, I would say it's the same. It's, it's okay. It's, it stems from the, I can, I yeah. can get with the source. 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 No, I mean, cause no one's going to say, no yeah. one's going to say, yeah. And I mean, I think this, no, but someone has said, right. That her experiences are actually, right. She That's exemplifies a, a, a certain type of black woman experience. Right. Yeah. And I would say she symbolizes in a sense, and this is why I say symbolizes, symbolizing in the sense of like incorporation into an order comprised of a series of semiotic codes and things. And that, I mean, and her sort of presence does kind of like abut or like run up against what Buckingham Palace represents. Mm -hmm. And it shows kind of like the, the sort of ferocity with which whiteness institutionality white institutionality god state whatever all of those complexes kind of require yeah we i think we're gonna have to have a part two because we're now at where are we at now two hours and 47 minutes our episode oh, usually an hour 15 <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're way way over so i'm gonna have to do a lot a lot of editing okay this this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we're just going to move on to our next topic and then wrap things up and schedule Chloe for a part two. <laughs> Brendan, do you want to take us away? Yeah. So today we are actually recording the day before the one year anniversary of the murder of Breonna Taylor. So on March 13th, 2020, Brianna Taylor was murdered in her bed by Louisville police officers. And we want to just take a moment to recognize her life and the grief of those who survive her and say that we honor you, Brianna, and we thank you for the gifts that you brought to this world. And we recognize the state sanctioned and patriarchal violence that took you away so soon. And in connection to what we read earlier, I wanted to draw attention to just the varied gendered violence that Brianna experienced prior to after her death. Um, and so when she was killed, police consistently gaslit her mother about her death. When her mother asked about how her daughter was doing, and this was before she knew her mother, her daughter was dead. The police had asked her if Brianna and her fiance had domestic troubles. So the, the plan was to say that the gunshot came from her fiance and not from the police. Um, and then after that, they lied to her mother about where, in fact, Brianna was. They said she was at a hospital and she was not. She was still lying dead in her bed. And her mother traveled to the hospital and came back. And they stole her body out of her bed and took her to the coroner office while her mother was gone. In addition to this, um, the additional violence occurred when it, when it took the elevation of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey's murders um, in order for her death to be recognized and to receive international attention. So with Black gendered state violence, we have to remember that Black women do not only experience a different kind of death, a gratuitous kind of death, a more violent kind of death, right? Their memory is also erased and the conditions of those who are left afterwards are variably affected. Thank you for that, Brendan. Thank you so much for being here with us, Chloe. Thanks for and thank me. you all so much for listening. This episode was produced by yours truly, Alyssa James, and my lovely co-host, Brendan Tynes. Our intern is Minkute Whaley, and the podcast is distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. 
This season of the podcast is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini-Grant Program at Columbia University, which is funded through a partnership with the Office of University Life, the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, and the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life. Further funding has been provided by grants from the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion and the Arts and Science Graduate Council, as well as donations from listeners <laughs> just like you. So thank you all for all of your support. Um, we love hearing from you and we really appreciate the conversations that we've been having with you. And again, thank you, Chloe, for coming and bringing all of your brilliance. So if you want to learn more, head on over to ZorisDaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios and contact info and other ways to support the podcast. And please follow us on Instagram at ZorisDaughters and on Twitter at Zoras underscore daughters. All right, everyone. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. 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 Bye.